You ever heard of WIIFM? Sounds kind of like the call signs to an FM radio station. Don't forget to tune in to WIIFM for the golden oldies. But it's actually an acrostic. It's an acrostic that stands for what's in it for me. And you know, if we're not careful, we can live our lives asking that question before we make any decision. What's in it for me? Before I spend my money or invest my time or my resources or my relational influence, I want to know what's in it for me. What am I going to get in return? Now, sometimes that's an appropriate question. What's in it for me? If someone asks you to put up your hard-earned money for a business venture, you ought to ask, what's in it for me? Before you consider going back to school and earning your college degree, you ought to ask, what's in it for me? Is this going to help me intellectually? Is it going to help me find a better job, provide for my family? That, that's a good question. But sometimes it's an inappropriate question. You know, for example, if you're a parent and you tell your child to take out the garbage and they ask you, what's in it for me? That's the wrong question. There's a roof over your head, there's food on your table and clothes on your back. That's what's in it for you. But, you know, even as Christians, even as Christ followers, if we're not careful, we can ask that question before we do what we need to do to help other people. What's in it for me? Well, I'll help out here, but what's in it for me? I'll give to this cause, but what's in it for me? I'll invest my time in this person, but what's in it for me? And sometimes that's an appropriate question, but other times it's not. Because if we're not careful, that question will cause us to reduce people to commodities that we can use for our personal gain. We can use people to man and manipulate people to maybe make ourselves look better or to get a political connection or to get a business deal we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. We can do what we do, and it may be a good thing that we're doing, but it could be for a wrong reason. It could be simply selfishness, where we use people for ourselves. Even churches can do that. My, one of my early churches that I pastored, I had this great idea. I thought it was a vision from God. I still believe it was for us to reach out into our community. And so I, I proposed that we buy some paperback New Testaments and, and we uh, go door to door and we give people free New Testaments and we uh, ask them if there's any way that we can serve them or pray for them and then invite them to some services that we were going to have. And when I finished my proposal... I found dead silence with the deacons. And it felt like minutes, but finally one of them spoke up and he said, well, pastor, you're new here. You're young. What you don't know is most of these people have Bibles. And if they don't know that, they know where they can buy them. And most people know where our church is. We don't need to knock on their door and tell them. If they want to come, they will come. And besides... You're talking about reaching young people and young families. You do realize, don't you, most of them don't give any money to the church. Oh, there was the problem. We're going to ask the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for us before we go and do something good? And if we can't see how it's going to bring money back to our church or how it's going to help out in some way, then we're not going to do it. And I knew deep down in my heart then that was a wrong assessment and you know what? Even in Jesus' day, people were using other people as stepping stones, as pawns. They were using people as commodities to just make themselves look better or to get richer or to find political connections. And Jesus absolutely opposed that attitude. 
In fact, when you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you see that his life was characterized in two primary ways. One way was humility. The other was generosity. Jesus was humble before all people and generous towards all people. And he expects that of his followers. That the kingdom of God works differently than the kingdom of men in this world. In God's kingdom, led by Jesus Christ, you're not driven first and foremost by the question, what's in it for me? You're driven first and foremost by the philosophy, you before me. That's how Jesus lived his life. He didn't say, before I do this miracle, before I heal this person, before I feed these 5,000 people, before I teach this sermon, let's answer the question, what's in it for me? No, he leveraged his life for the benefit of other people's lives. He lived by the philosophy, not what's in it for me, but you before me. When he went to a bloody cross, he did not say what's in it for me. He went with the idea in his heart, you before me. I will sacrifice myself for the good of someone else. Jesus knew that worldly philosophy has a tendency to rub off on his followers. And so he calls it out often. We see this prime example in our passage today, Luke chapter 14. In just a moment, we'll begin reading with verse 7. As we talk about this message, I'm calling the way up is down. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 7, let me set the stage because Jesus is about to rebuke some people for this question, what's in it for me? And he's going to give a new way of life, a new way of living, a new way of seeing yourself and seeing other people. And if we will learn this new way and if we will adopt it, it'll change our lives. It'll change our relationships. It'll change the way we view other people and it will change our church. And how we do church, and how we view this community, and how we view our mission here at Fort Caroline Baptist Church. Now to set the stage, Jesus has been invited once again to a Pharisee's home for a dinner party. Jesus has gone to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, Saturday, and after worship, and perhaps he even taught that day, I'm not sure. He's invited by this religious leader to his home and if you'll find anything out about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and that is he doesn't turn down invitations to parties. You invite him to your home for a party, he's going to show up. And so he showed up, and he comes. Now, we don't have time to read it today, but he actually healed a man uh, that was at that party, and it was a setup. The religious leaders had brought this crippled man into the party because they didn't believe it was lawful, according to the Old Testament, to work on the Sabbath day. And they considered healing a sick person work. So they set a trap for Jesus so that he would heal that guy. And they could then blame him for not obeying the Old Testament law. But that's a whole other sermon. But during this party, not only are they watching Jesus, trying to find something they can catch him in so that they can destroy his popularity with the people... Little do they know, while they're watching him, he's watching them. Luke chapter 14, verse 7, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. He'd been watching them. He noticed something. He noticed that as people entered the Pharisees' home, that they made a mad dash to get to the seats of honor. The best seats in the house. 
Now, in that culture, they would recline at a table. It would be a low table and a long table or even a few tables put together. And then there would be cushions all around that table where people would recline at the table. And the people filled in in a U-shape. There was only one head of the table, and that's the host of the home. And the seat on the left or the right of the host were the seats of honor. You see, in the Roman culture, that the whole society was built on shame and honor. You would go down in society if you brought shame on your name. Or you could rise in society if you were honored by other people. And so they were looking for the seats of honor and they jockeyed for position trying to get in and grab those seats first. And Jesus noticed that. He noticed that they saw each other as obstacles in their way to getting honor. So about me, it's about what I get out of this. I want to be seen by other people sitting by the host. I want to be viewed as more honorable than everyone else in the room. And so Jesus tells a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how those people chose the places of honor. Now a parable is a teaching that is brought alongside of a spiritual truth. And so Jesus tells a parable saying to them, verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Verse 9, And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Jesus doesn't rebuke the host and the guest directly. Instead, he just kind of tells a story, gives a little friendly advice for any future occasions they may be invited to. He chooses to use the most prominent uh, celebration of their day, and that would be a wedding celebration. And Jesus says, whenever you're invited to a wedding, don't run in and grab the first seat of honor that you find. Because it could just so happen that on that day, someone more honorable than you shows up. And there you are, less honorable, sitting in the place of honor. Now the host is going to have to come to you in front of everyone assembled and say, Oh, excuse me, I need you to leave your seat. You need to go to the last seat. You see it way back there. If you squint, you can see it. And uh, you need to walk past all these people because... Someone more honorable than you is here, and this is their seat. And now you got to walk the walk of shame in front of everyone. And it's going to be embarrassing. You don't want to go through that. Jesus says, I'm just telling you. He's saying there is no shame in being humble, but there is in being humbled. That's where the shame comes. There's no shame in being a humble person. But there is great shame in being humbled in front of other people. That you're at a place. You don't deserve this. I'm going to move you down. He says that is a shameful thing. And look at verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. 
Jesus is actually quoting from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 6 and 7, that talks about don't exalt yourself in the eyes of a king. Rather, let him do that on his own. Because if you exalt yourself, he may put you in your place. And so Jesus is using this as a teaching point. He's saying it'd be better to go to that wedding feast and you just sit at the lowest place and then let the host decide if he wants to bring you up. Let someone else honor you. There's no shame in being humble, but there's a lot of shame in being humbled in the eyes of other people. And it'd be much better if the host comes up to you and says, friend, what are you doing back here? Come on up front. I've got a good seat for you. Jesus says that would be much better. It is better to be humble and let others honor you than for you to be arrogant and honor yourself. It's better to be humble and let others honor you. And then Jesus gives the teaching, the truth, the little twist, the key to this parable in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus gives this truth, and you'll notice who's humbling those people who exalt themselves. Who's exalting those people who humble themselves. He just says in the passive voice, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a passive voice. It's actually a theological passive. Jesus is saying, if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. But if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. Jesus is hinting that there is a greater kingdom than the kingdom of Rome that you need to be thinking about. It is the invisible kingdom of God. And in God's kingdom, he turns things upside down. The way up is down. You exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled by God. But if you humble yourself, if you put others ahead of yourself, God will exalt you. Now, it wasn't just the guest who had a problem. Even the host had a problem. The only reason he threw this party was so that he could use this party to set Jesus up, to trap Jesus, and to discredit Jesus. And he probably assumed this would make him look better in the eyes of his co-workers. He would gain credibility in the eyes of the religious leaders if he personally was used to bring Jesus down. So Jesus turns to the, the host, verse 12. He, all, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Remember in this culture, it's shame and honor. I want to do something to honor someone so that they in turn will then honor me. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Quid pro quo. You do me a favor, I do you a favor. I do this for you, now you owe me. And Jesus says to him, that's not the way to live your life. He's not saying when you have a party, don't ever invite those people, totally banish those people. He's saying don't invite only those people who can pay you back, who can give you something in return. I'm going to invite them and I'll get a good business deal out of this. I'm going to invite them and then they're going to owe me one when I need a favor. 
I'm going to invite them, and I'm going to look so much better in the eyes of society. I'm going to invite them, and people will brag on me. I'm going to invite them, and I will look honorable in the eyes of others. But true generosity is not based on reciprocity. True generosity is not based on what I get from you in return. Generosity is based on love, not reciprocity. I mean, for example, on Christmas morning, if, if you give all of your kids their presents and they open them and they're so excited, and then you give your spouse their present and they go, what, I can't believe it, you got this for me, how did you know? And then you turn around, oh, I'm so glad you like it. Now, kids, you each owe me $50, and, and sweetheart, you owe me 300 And so, if you don't mind, if you could just pay me back in a week. <laughs> You say, well, what kind of gift is that? It's not a gift if I have to pay you back, if I owe you something for having received it. Exactly. That's not generosity. Generosity is not based on reciprocity. Generosity is based on love, grace, mercy. Verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13, Jesus says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. In Christ's day, these were the down-and-out people. And even though they had different problems and ailments and issues, they had one thing in common. They could not pay you back if you did something good for them. And Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite those people who can't pay you back. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Verse 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You see, you know your heart's right when you can do something without thought of anything in return. You know your heart's right when it's not what's in it for me. You know your heart's right when it's you before me. But Jesus says, for you will be repaid. At the resurrection of the just. You know who is watching? You know who is going to repay you for that kind of humility and generosity? None other than God himself. That when you stand before Jesus in the kingdom of God. And he rewards based on the deeds done in the body. Whether good or bad. He will reward you. Can I tell you? Your benefits are out of this world. Now, is Jesus just giving us good advice for the next dinner party we're invited to? Is Jesus just teaching us how to be better hypocrites so that we're not really so obvious that we really want something out of this whole thing, but I want to appear humble? Is that what Jesus is saying? Oh, you just go take the lowest seat and then let them bring you up. You see, you got what you wanted. That's, that's, now everybody knows how honorable you are. And, and now you also not only look honorable, you look humble. Because someone else honored you. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he telling us how to be better hypocrites? No. When he said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, he was giving a hint. There's a whole other kingdom that you need to be thinking about. You say, well, how can I be humble? Isn't it hard to be humble? You know, I mean, you know I'm not perfect. But, you know, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that lady. I've never done what those other people have done. Maybe that country song is your theme. It's hard to be humble. Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. 
But once you shift your eyes away from the kingdom of this world, where we compare ourselves to each other, and you place yourself in the kingdom of God, standing before the righteous king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, you won't have to make yourself humble. You will be humble. Because you realize in his presence, we are sinners. Do you know who the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind are that Jesus referred to in his parable? It's you and me. That spiritually speaking, before the kingdom of God, we are spiritually unable to live for God, unable to pay God back for any good thing he's done for us, much less earn our way into the kingdom of heaven. The only reason we are members of the family of God, the only reason we're a part of the kingdom of God is because God in humility and generosity sent his one and only son into this world to invite us who were spiritually helpless and hopeless. Come to the banquet hall. Come and let the host Bless you because he loves you. There's nothing you can do to pay him back. But out of his sheer love, he invites you. Come. And when we realize that, it's not hard to be humble. We are sinners saved by God's grace. And every good thing we have is because the Lord Jesus Christ paid the price. Not asking what's in it for me but saying, you before me. This is the same Jesus who says in Mark 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man, he was referring to himself, did not come into the world to be served by the world, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we humble ourselves, recognizing how good God has been to us, and we put other people before ourselves, God notices that. Because God recognizes that. You know, whenever we humble ourselves and we put others ahead of ourselves, God recognizes it because he's seen it before fleshed out in his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years later after this, the apostle Paul, you remember he was a Pharisee, he was a Jew, very righteous, trying to be honorable in his society, trying to climb that ladder of success trying to earn his way into God's good graces, using people and abusing people to get his own way. But one day, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, confronted him, saved him from his sins, changed his life from that day forward. And many years later, he gave some instructions to the Christians in the city of Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, Paul declares, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a, what's the word? Servant. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus says, be like Jesus. Paul says, be like your Lord Jesus. God, co-eternal, uncreated, the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God the Son stepped out of eternity and humbled himself, contracted himself to the span of a virgin's womb and was born a man, the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. And he humbled himself from humble beginnings to a humble life to a humiliating death on a cross. He didn't just die. God humbling himself to die for people, the creator dying for the creation, the maker of men dying for men. He didn't just die. He could have died an old man wrapped up in a warm bed in his sleep. No, he died on a bloody cross. And the Old Testament says, whoever hangs on a tree is cursed by God. Jesus took our curse. He took our sin. He took our punishment. There's no more humiliating death than that, than to be stripped naked before God and men and to die a sinner, even though you're the spotless son of God. And he went into that tomb. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And he rose to the right hand of God the Father 40 days later. And today he is seated at the right hand of God the Father praying for you and for me. And Paul says, and God exalted him. And God has given him the one and only name that at that name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What does this mean for you and for me? It means there's a new way that I can live. That when I look at other people... I don't look to use them, manipulate them. I don't do a cost-benefit analysis before I do good to them. Just like my Savior sacrificed himself for me, I should be willing to sacrifice my life for others. My pride, my possessions, my plans, my priorities, my pursuits, my pleasures, none of that's important if God calls me to put others before me and to serve others. That's, that's a way that can transform how you look at your spouse, how you look at your boyfriend and your girlfriend, how you look at your children, how you look at your parents, how you look at your coworker, your neighbor. 
You before me transforms how you see that person of a different skin color or a different nationality or a different ethnicity or a different language or a different political persuasion or a different lifestyle. That like Jesus, we don't count the cost. We love. Now, how can that help our church? What does this mean for our church? You know, 65% of our community is under the age of 44 years old. And sometimes I get accused of only caring about young families and young people. No, it's not true. This church is a church so blessed with multi-generations. Isn't that awesome? But I will never apologize for being passionate about reaching the very people that Jesus put us in this neighborhood to reach. And I'm so thankful that I've never sat in one single finance team meeting, which I have to do every month, and I've never heard them say, all this emphasis on preschoolers and children and students and young families and parents, you know, those kids don't put money in our offering plate. It is an accounting scheme spawned in hell that says we won't serve people unless they can put some money back in our plate. I thank God for church members like you that go about doing good, not counting the cost. What's in it for me? Will I get a tax write-off? You just go out and you do good. And I may not see it. Other people may not see it. But the Lord Jesus in heaven sees it. And he says, at the resurrection of the just, when you stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you will be rewarded. Fort Caroline Baptist Church, let us stop talking about our preferences how we like church, my parking spot, where my life group is, which hour, the style of music, how I think the preacher ought to dress. Who cares? Let us love this community and sacrifice whatever we have to sacrifice to show them Christ's love. I don't know which one of you sent it to me, and I really, I should have thought to bring it this morning and put it on the screen, but I, I just wasn't thinking last week. But, but I saw one of your Facebook pages. I'm not sure which one of you it was. Several months ago, maybe a year ago. It was a picture that had been taken during the filming of the movie, The Passion. Remember Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ? And during one of the downtimes, Mel Gibson is sitting next to uh, Jim Caviezel. Uh, Jim was playing Jesus in the movie. And it was in between takes, and it was the crucifixion scene. So there Jim is, all dressed like Jesus, wearing you know, a robe at this point. Uh, he's evidently been beaten by the Roman soldiers. He's got the crown of thorns on his head. There's the Hollywood blood that is just drenched all over him. The scars on his face are visible. Looks like his beard has been plucked out. And there, there he is, sitting on a, on a bench... And there Mel Gibson is sitting next to him, talking to him. And Mel's dressed in just, you know, regular, everyday attire. And the caption said, This is what it's like when I complain to Jesus about how hard my life is. That there I am, moaning and groaning about the sacrifices I'm making and how hard my life is. And all the while, talking to the one who is bloodied and battered and beaten and he says, oh, tell me more about the sacrifices you're having to make. Oh, they changed the music at your church. You're kidding. <laughs> he preached without a tie. Really? 
You mean you had to walk from the back of the parking lot? I hope they, the sanctuary was air-conditioned when you got in there. Do you see how silly our complaints are? And how sublime it will be if we will say, Dear Lord Jesus, I don't want my life and I don't want our church to be guided by the philosophy, what's in it for me. I'd rather be guided you before me. And I'm willing to sacrifice to show the people of this community your love. Welcome to the banquet. Join the rest of us, poor, crippled, lame, blind, who have now been healed by Jesus. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, thank you for the words of Jesus. And I'm honest today when I say to this congregation, say to you before this congregation, that this sermon has been easier for me to preach than to live. I pray, that though, that from this day forward, you, by your Holy Spirit, would help me to live by the philosophy, you before me. Father, also pray that you would reignite the passion of this church for this community whom Jesus is inviting to the banquet of salvation. Come into the family of God. Come into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and join us. And Father, we praise you for what you'll do in the life of our church in the days ahead. Father, if there's anyone in this room that needs Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that in the stillness of this moment, you would draw them unto yourself. All they would have to do is say to you in their heart right now, Dear God, I admit to you I'm a sinner. But I believe Jesus is your son who died for me on the cross, paying the price for my forgiveness that I could never earn. You went into a grave, but on the third day you raised him from the dead, proving he is the son of God, proving he has the power to do what he said he could do. He said he could forgive me of my sin and give me eternal life if I believed in him. His resurrection proves I can put my confidence in him. If he can do that, he can do anything. And I thank you for his gracious invitation to even a sinner like me come to the table and let God honor you with his gift of salvation. Father, we'll praise you for what you do in each life today as people turn and place their trust in you as Savior and Lord. And as we Christians continue to follow Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.